Welcome back to the Sioux City Show. My name is Taylor Grody. We have a special one today, a remote podcast. Uh, We're all on lockdown for the coronavirus, and today we have an expert with us, uh, at least the biggest expert we can get on the show. Um, His name is Scott, and he was formerly with the USDA Laboratory for Infectious Diseases. I'm sure I'm butchering this, but I'll let him introduce himself. Go ahead, Scott. Hi. Yeah, I'm Scott Taylor, a veterinarian. Worked at in Ames. We have a large campus here in USDA. It's the National uh, Center for Animal Health. That's what it's called right now. And uh, yeah, I've I've worked there. I'm retired from there. I worked 32 years at the at the center. Um, we did uh, research, animal research, and I worked in a center called uh, the Center for Veterinary Biologics, which is the um, the agency within USDA that regulates vaccines that are used in animals. So that's kind of my background there. I graduated from Iowa State uh, Veterinary Medicine and went to uh, graduate school and studied immunology there also. So that's awesome. kind of my awesome. area of expertise is immunology and virology. I yep. should also add to this um, on the call. Also, we have my business partner, Brad Lepper, who is a uh, real estate tycoon, a uh, coffee shop <laughs> mogul, and uh, my business partner in Honeywave Media. And he is also, uh, you know, he's Scott's son-in-law, so he can also provide, you know, a little bit of insight on like what is what is like being a local business owner during these times. So, Brad, go ahead and introduce yourself too. Yeah, I'm Brad Lepper from uh, here in Sioux City, and uh, yeah, Scott, I've known Scott now for over a decade, and um, he he was the guy that called me back in early January and told me that uh, we should keep an eye on this virus that's circulating in China. And so thanks to him, I think I laughed at him originally. Sorry about that, Scott. Um, <laughs> I was like, well, why is this any different from SARS or Ebola or anything else? You know, this, is, this isn't ever going to come here. And uh, Scott's was like, no, this, this one's different. This one, this one could get bad. And so we kind of were a team investigating this from that point on. And uh, it's been... Uh, it's been very helpful to have somebody who specializes in microbiology, immunology, and all of that to uh, bounce ideas off of and kind of give me that BS test on whether something is legit or not. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So- you, you, uh, you, you had healthy skepticism, but it didn't last long, and you started doing some research. So you, thankfully, we have a good relationship, and you trust, trust my judgment and vice versa. So, yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting start to this whole journey, isn't it? So Absolutely. Scott, when it, when it was all starting at the beginning, what were the things that were like jumping out at you that made you say, this is something we should keep an eye on? Well, first of all, it's a, a new novel virus. They call them novel viruses. And it came, it came from China, which is kind of a notoriously, if you look back at history, um, a lot of bad pandemics uh, have come from China. And they have this a unique interface between animals and humans. And so it's, Generally, over history, over the centuries, it's been a hotbed of, of pandemics. That's where a lot of Yersinia pestis, which is the Black Plague, came came from there way back in the, I think, the 1700s. So it's that in itself is bad. And then it's a RNA virus, which we can talk about a little bit later, which is a little tougher to deal with than some of the other viruses. It, like I said, it was new. It's novel, meaning that everybody, all the population of this uh, the whole world is naive to it, meaning that our immune system has never seen this, meaning that our our uh, 
we're all susceptible to the disease and to the virus itself, to the infection. So um, that, and then the big, another big kicker was early on when we, when we discovered that it could be transmitted, uh, transmitted between humans, so human human transmission, that was the key. That was really an eye-opener and because we've had other viruses from China that have been very deadly, but they're not very infectious and wouldn't spread from human to human very well, if at all. So <clears throat> the fact that it was new, it came from China, it's, it's uh, very contagious, it's spread human to human, those things start adding up to uh, really be high on my radar and and uh, and send off some flags to, of concern. And Brad, I know, like you know, just working in the office, you were kind of a uh, an early warning sign for everybody around me. Certainly, that like you took it very seriously as soon as uh, you were getting information from Scott. So, um, how how did that affect your decisions going into like? preparing stone brew for getting, you know, getting ready for the coronavirus. And I know that you were kind of an early actor on making sure that your employees were safe and taken care of. Yeah, I think from watching it and what was happening as it spread from China um, and seeing how other countries were responding, uh, I think just saw the gravity of the situation. When you were seeing cities of 12 million people that were uh, on lockdown and when you were seeing uh, entire countries and regions. I think that was one of the biggest things was seeing how many people were quarantined by the millions uh, that I've never seen in my lifetime and uh, I don't think has ever happened. So seeing that going on, um, paying attention more to what governments and uh, decision makers were doing versus what they were saying early on was helpful. Um, yeah, I'd say like, I, Brad, I think you might have frozen up there. I don't know if you can still hear us or not. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, you go ahead. Yep. I was going to say, yeah, he's basically reinforcing um, you don't listen to what the, the, those government officials were saying from China, but you watch what they do. And they were taking unprecedented uh, actions, which indicated that they were uh, a lot more concerned. Yeah, we're actually yeah. here. They're a lot more concerned about this virus than what they were saying officially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they were they were mis- they were being very misleading and and covering up what was actually going on, but their actions were exposing what what was really happening on the, on the ground. Yeah, and it and it kind of opens your eyes, you know, uh, in a in a country that has over a million uh, ethnic Uyghurs in concentration camps right now, it's like, well, we got to take their coronavirus actions pretty seriously, but maybe we shouldn't start rounding up the ethnic Muslims in the United States and putting them in a concentration camps. You really got to pick and choose with that country, what you're going to follow. Cause they are really off the wall in all their actions. Um, but, uh, I took high school chemistry twice because I failed it the first time. So I am the, uh, furthest thing from even a, uh, novice of what to, what like the RNA, the DNA, the, the science of why this is different. I, I really don't even I can't even begin to um, understand that. So do you kind of have like a explain it like I'm five version of why this is different on a molecular level? Yeah, the um, viruses can be broken down into two groups and based on their genetic um, coding information that's built inside the cell or inside the virus itself, Uh, RNA or DNA. And those are our genetic codes. Um, RNA viruses, um, are notorious for being uh, 
troubles, especially for causing disease. Uh, influenza is an RNA virus. Uh, our our uh, coronaviruses, obviously, which this one is, is, is a problem. Um, the rhinoviruses. Viruses um, that are RNA viruses are are hard to, to produce vaccines for that are effective, and that's one of the, the main problems. The other problem is the RNA is an unstable molecule compared to the DNA uh, code, and so when they're when they go through what we call translation or and transcription, meaning when they're copied and, and used as a template, they're not very robust, and they make a lot of mistakes as they're copied, and those mistakes can change the virus over time, and they're so they're dynamic, and that that causes problems for vaccines, and it also causes problems for those of us those of us that are infected because our immune system doesn't recognize the change, and so they can be. Uh, they can be virulent again and cause disease again, even though we've been exposed to a different, a different variety or strain of that same virus. So, uh, so when you use like uh, words like change or uh, like transcriptions, are I guess a, a word that gets thrown around a lot in the media is uh, um, mutations. Is that is that kind of the same thing there you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Right. Yep. They're they're dynamic, and so they can mutate and change over time. So they're they're actual. Um, DNA, or in this case, RNA backbone structure is is able is able to change because it's unstable. Okay. Yeah. That makes what starts to be some sense for me. So I appreciate that. <laughs> yep. Um, and and Brad, I'm sorry you got you got cut off earlier. Your your connection kind of cut out, but um, you were talking about you know taking care of uh, employees and. Uh, trying to figure out as a business owner how to make sure that you're taking care of your employees and the, and their health in the best way possible while also, you know, being realistic. And, and now that we're seeing like the small business association says that they're all tapped out of funds and nothing else is coming to small business owners. So how, how does that balance of, you know, keeping a business alive, making sure that you still have a job to give somebody when they're back from this. And meanwhile, keeping your workers healthy, how does that balance all look like for you? Well, I think, um, can you hear me okay? Yep, I can hear you. Okay. So the, I think the priority has to be the health of, of your employees and of your customers. Um, and so watching this from the very beginning, realizing how dangerous it was, um, I, I think that, that was the thing that made me want to say, hey, let's, let's close here. Let's, let's get a grip on what's going on. Because the, the testing, um, especially here in Iowa, was so poor early on that we had no idea who was infected and who wasn't where we knew people who were showing symptoms that could have been positive and would go or call the doctor and they say, Oh, well, you're, you haven't had contact with a known case and you haven't traveled, so we can't test you. Um, and so we, we were just flying blind. And so once I started to hear of people that I knew personally that had symptoms and were not able to be tested, that was the kind of the moment of like, well, we need to close until we know what's going on. Uh, and since then, we closed on the 23rd of March originally. And since then, I found out of some customers who are very regular that come into our store almost daily who have come shown up to be positive. So if we would have stayed open even a matter of three to four days more, uh, I can guarantee we would have had positive cases interacting with our employees and coming in and out of our stores. So. Um, I feel like we got got lucky or blessed that we we closed when we did. Um, so the, I think the biggest thing was 
health and safety of the staff and our customers. Uh, and once we had that taken care of, then making sure they're taken care of financially. And at that point in time, uh, the unemployment was set up and the CARES Act was getting ready to be passed. So I was fairly confident that our employees were going to be taken care of uh, financially, even if we closed. So it was a, it was kind of a mix of those two things, both both their physical health as well as their financial health. But once I knew that uh, the best decision was to close, we, we took action. Yeah, and I'd say, I guess, uh, from my viewpoint and being, uh, you know, kind of a close in the whole process with you as you're going through it, um, I really felt like it was a master class and like putting your employees and customers first and worrying about the the bills and the overhead later. And, uh, you know, just for anybody listening, like it was, it was pretty impressive the way you, you made the decisions based on health and health alone, it seemed like, um, right off the bat and were able to regroup. And, uh, now you have your Gordon drive, uh, drive through location open and, and it's really nice balance in between, you know, figuring out what's going on, taking the right steps, and then taking a measured response to like start rolling back out the business side of things. Um, and speaking yeah, of that, thanks. Uh, so Scott, um, you know, as a guy who recognized the warning signs early on and, you know, had some, I'm sure you had thoughts and um, ideas about what the United States should be doing in response to that. Uh, what do you see, like, as of today, what is the right response going forward? And, and this is in your opinion. It's nothing anybody's going to hold you to, disclaimer. Um, that I guess I, I was just thinking about this this morning is, you know, we kind of started shutting things down when there was like 50 confirmed cases in Iowa. And now people are starting to say, well, let's open things up on May 1st. And it's like, well, there's, you know, whatever, a couple thousand cases of confirmed cases in Iowa. So if we let everybody roll things back out, then isn't that much worse than the position we started off in? And what does the long term look like as far as like getting back to hopefully some semblance of normality? Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, And I'd I'd go back to the uh, initial testing and that was a problem. The, the fact that we couldn't test was was quite a failure on our on our CDC's and FDA's part. Um, that set us back uh, quite a ways. Now, I will say I think I, I think we took some good action by cutting you know banning travel air air travel from China fairly early and also from Europe. I think those were good actions that we took. But the fact that we didn't have good testing uh, early and really aggressive testing to understand what was going on um, that that set us back quite a while and then I get you know backing up even further than that the misinformation that came from China and our WHO especially that that really put us behind the eight ball on on the whole the whole story about this and an and, interesting thing with that Scott mm-hmm. is you talk about shutting off air travel so we shut off air travel to China and the WHO and China were both mad. Meanwhile, they had closed off Wuhan uh, within their own country. So they had quarantined Wuhan, but were continuing to fly international flights in and out of Wuhan, even after they had quarantined it from the rest of the country. So that went to show that they were not acting in good faith early on, that they weren't risking people from Wuhan traveling to the province next door, but they were willing to put them on international flights. Yeah, not only good faith, you, you, you begin to wonder if they weren't malevolent and actually wanting it to spread worldwide, so others had to deal with it, too. It's uh, Yeah, that history is yet to be written, but 
there's a lot of investigations that, that need to, to discover what's really happening there. And we, we know Taiwan notified the WHO late in December that it was human-human transmission, and WHO uh, did, not, did not notify the world about that. My dog is in full-on attack dog mode right now. She is great at security and bad at showbiz, so I've been trying to keep my mic muted over here. <laughs> uh, but I guess it, regarding like misinformation, I think it's just been incredibly stressful as the average person. You know, like there is nothing but conflicting information out about right now. It's like uh, I don't know if you saw it today that uh, I think it was Mike Pence is saying you shouldn't be wearing or as the CDC and relayed by Mike Pence was saying that you shouldn't be wearing face masks now and that it's more likely to spread if you're wearing a face mask. And it's like, what, what's going on here? Uh, you know, I, I guess I don't have any even clue where to start getting my information from when it's one thing one day the WHO is saying one thing the CDC is saying another what what do you feel about that Scott like who would be the most reputable source for us to even go to for information yeah that's that's a great question um it seems like international officials like the WHO government officials like China and the United States have not been very reliable so, and the mainstream media has not been reliable, unfortunately. So it, that's a challenge for the average American. Where, where do you, where do you go for information and who do you trust? And, and, uh, uh, that, that is a challenge. Obviously with, thankfully with the internet, there's alternate choice, alternate, uh, information sources out there. Unfortunately, you need to know who's, who's telling the truth, who, who doesn't. So it's, in my opinion, and well, in my background, I have the advantage, obviously, of understanding what's going on, and I can, I can, uh, I can, I have a good uh, ability to detect uh, manipulations of information than somebody that's a layman that doesn't have a background in virology, immunology, like like I do. So, I, I get that. So basically, we're we're drowning in information, but we're starving for actual knowledge and and uh, truth and reality in this whole situation. Yeah, the the scary thing yeah, is. And I think. Oh, go ahead, Brad. The whole, the whole nonsense about masks that early on the Surgeon General says masks are ineffective, <laughs> you shouldn't use them, um, but our medical professionals need them. So, you know, they're, they're not effective for you, but our medical professionals need them. Um, that was such a transparent statement where he would have been way better off to just say, hey, uh, masks are a vital uh, piece of protection equipment that we need for our medical facilities. So please do not hoard them um, because we're going to need them in our hospitals to protect our frontline workers versus kind of speaking out of both sides of your mouth saying they're not effective, but our, our medical professionals need them. That confused people. And I hadn't heard about Pence or, or the CDC coming out today saying that face masks are ineffective because that's, that's nonsense. We know that this travels uh, through the air uh, as well as with touch. Um, that gets into the air through coughs, um, through sneezes even through breathing. So um, even if your mask is homemade, it's, it's better than nothing. Um, so for them to say that they're not effective, I just, I just, uh, it kind of boggles the mind, honestly. Yeah. yeah I, I guess I'd go, go ahead, Scott. Yeah. I would, I would go back to one of the things that characteristics that we looked at early to see if we were concerned about this was how contagious was it? And um, it quickly 
the information coming out of China indicated it was extremely contagious. So that's another, you know, characteristic of this virus that, that put it on its radar and, and was concerned. So basically we have this um, mentality is, um, you know, we, we prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And as the story un, unfolded about this virus, the worst case scenario began to unfold. And, and that story is, is kind of where it is today. And that story will continue as we learn more about the characteristics characteristics of this virus, which is quite unique. Yeah, I think that, you know, I mentioned that it's just frustrating to get, to get the conflicting information where, like, they say, now they come out today and say, whatever, face masks are ineffective. And it's like, well, isn't that the whole point of the the six feet, the you know, the social distancing, the what, what, staying away from each other is all the theory of airborne contagion, correct? And yeah. it's just frustrating to hear that. And, and now it's like, oh, the, that's what this whole thing, it seems to be based around. It's like the biggest tenant is staying away from people and now is it, oh, I just can't touch things that other people have touched or, you know. Yeah. You, people need to put their reasoning hat on and when they're thinking about things like that and don't just assume and uh, take authority's uh, narrative uh, as, as the gospel. And yeah. Common sense goes, common sense goes along. Reasoning goes a long way in this case. I guess uh, also Scott is like, you know, long-term, maybe 12 months out looking forward, um, is finding a vaccine like a feasible idea in the next six months, or is it something that maybe in a year or two that we'll have one? Or wh- what do you think, uh, like from a research side of things, what does that actually look like in terms of uh, a projected timeline? Um, yeah, I, I'd say, you know, one year to 18 months is that there's a potential for a vaccine, but, but again, I, <clears throat> the, the caution there is this is an RNA virus. They don't lend themselves to be very good uh, candidates for vaccines. If, because if that was the case, why don't we have a vaccine for the common cold and the other coronaviruses that are out there? We know the influenza vaccines don't work very well. They're, they're not very effective. They're out there and they recommend we use them all the time, but their efficacy is pretty poor. Otherwise, why do so many of us continue to get the, the virus even after vaccination? So these aren't good candidates for vaccines. So I hope we can come up with one, but I'm, I'm cautious about the vaccine. And the other thing is, uh, by the time the vaccine is ready for use, this thing would have already spread pretty much to, to everybody in the world. So the, the, the timing's off. Do you think that that is the most reasonable outcome or the most, I guess, the most likely outcome of this is the... Uh, kind of like an idea that it's going to be everybody that gets it in, in the mitigation of like all of our um, health and safety concerns between now and then is basically making sure that hospitals are not inundated with one giant wave of everybody who's sick or what, what does it actually look like in a, in a way that's actually feasible for the best possible outcome? Yeah, I think you can confidently say that we'll all be exposed to this virus eventually. Um, that's that's just a matter of time, especially as contagious as this is, um, and that that's just kind of a matter of fact. Uh, the timing of it is the question, obviously. And yeah, their their objective early was uh, without mitigation, they were consumed. They were concerned that this would overwhelm the medical communities and ab- ability to treat uh, people, and and it was going to be devastating. 
So that's why they they were so aggressive with with locking down the country because they didn't they didn't have uh, any other uh, mitigation other than doing that because they didn't know how bad the virus was. They were afraid it overwhelmed our medical communities, which is legitimate. So they had to be pretty aggressive about locking down the country. I guess I have a uh, maybe some questions that we could run through um, that are what I find to be the most frustrating things that I see constantly shared on the internet that maybe you can say that's something that's uh, possibly um, something that we should consider or that is lunacy. And (laughs) if any of these are like, you know, outside of your field of expertise that you feel comfortable lending a solid opinion on, don't, don't hesitate to tell me to just skip it. But uh, I can just make I can just make something up. There you go. There you go. You're, you're retired. You not you don't have a career at stake here. I like it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so the first one is is Bill Gates, the philanthropist who has donated billions upon billions of dollars to uh, vaccine research, uh, mostly in the area of uh, malaria, and has arguably saved north of a hundred million lives. Is he uh, a greedy capitalist pig who is doing everything involved in vaccine research in order to uh, build his wealth more? I don't think he's really, there's not that much money in, in, in vaccines um, per se. I don't think he's in for it for the money. I do think he might be in, in into it for his prestige and he, you know, he's, his significance in the world, I think that's more of a driving force for him. Um, so if he wanted to make money, he would stay in the software business, I think, and the tech business is where it's a lot more money than vaccines. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's financial, really. Um, is, he, is he actually doing good with what he's doing right now? I, I'm not so sure that he is. Um, I don't, he gives a lot of money to the WHO, and he's critical for Trump cutting money from the WHO, which I think is, is um, unfortunate because uh, the WHO has been pathetic in their response to this pandemic. And I think cutting funding off and studying what's going on in WHO is quite appropriate. All right. The next, I think there's, hold on. I'll I'll throw in something here. I think that Everybody is fear of Bill Gates. They see anybody with a lot of money and think that they're out to get them. And I just don't see that here with Bill Gates. He's given away millions and millions of dollars, billions of dollars to try and help people. Um, This thing started in China. Uh, It's not like Bill Gates infected people. So I'm not I'm not seeing the Bill Gates connection that a lot of people are talking about. So I don't see that either. Okay, so uh, this. the other, con- the other connection is uh, 5G, and 5G towers currently exist in, I think, five countries, and this virus is present uh, in basically every country in the world. Any country who says that they don't have confirmed cases probably doesn't have a, a healthcare system that's equipped to roll out testing in the way that's acceptable to be able to claim whether or not you do have any confirmed cases. So is uh, 5G towers um, what is infecting people with the coronavirus? That's actually a conspiracy theory out there. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot I can, of... I, I can, I can, I can flat out tell you that. So you got a technical electronic equipment spewing out a biological uh, virus. That's uh, that's complete BS. 
So Scott, yeah, that let's just wipe let's just wipe that right off the Brad right off me, the conspiracy. <laughs> Brad told me you don't have Facebook, so uh, I I I'm warning you. There's a lot of idiots out there, far more than you're thinking. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, Shocking. That's that's a theory that you can dump in the trash. Is that no way? One that you know, I kind of see the the quick snap uh, thought process in it, but to me, on a moral level, it just seems asinine. Is uh, the idea that oh, well, this COVID nineteen is only uh, has a ninety seven percent survival rate, so we should all just say screw it, get back into public, get back to work. It's only going to kill three percent of us. Without like the i the idea nor the realization that in America we have three hundred thirty million people estimated, so that means that we're comfortable with you know basically killing off three million people off the top. I, I guess that just seems crazy to me. But is that something that holds any weight to like what might be the solution to all this? Or I guess in your opinion, that's probably more of a uh, just tell me your opinion question rather than a tell me the facts question, but. What do you think? Well, um, yeah, that's a story that's really not unfolded yet. It's just still getting started. Uh, how this how this virus spreads and, and the impact that it's going to have uh, globally. So the speed with which we allow it to happen can have a significant effect. So slowing it down was a good thing. That gives us time to study it, to understand mitigating things that work and don't work, testing. And all those types of things. So it was good to try to slow it down. It's not a good idea to let it just go like a wildfire and just devastate the country. That's not appropriate. So, you know, those those things that we can mitigate to slow it down, reduce the disease, reduce, the, obviously, the outcome of death is important. Um, now, you got to balance that with the destruction of our economy, which is a heck of a challenge. And I And I get that. So... Um, I kind of wish I kind of wish the authorities would have asked veterinarians how to handle this because I think we we have a good uh, experience in our background about handling uh, populations of of uh, animals and such in, in livestock production and uh, how how to deal with outbreaks uh, better than than the human medicine does because they usually deal with people on an individual basis. Uh, that okay, so this might be unrelated, but I can't remember. Maybe 2015. Was when uh, all those all the bird populations in Iowa, like the the chickens, were being like absolutely wiped out by some type of pandemic. Influenza, probably influenza. Yeah, we see there our our birds are susceptible to influenza. That's usually actually where a lot of the influenza start in birds, and then they move to either pigs and or humans. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, the pathogenic uh, influenza is always on our radar. It's always a possibility because, again, go back to remember what we talked about. The RNA viruses uh, change, and, and influenza is an RNA virus, and it changes over time. And we're always concerned about a new one emerging and causing you know, being very pathogenic in not only uh, poultry and swine, but also in other species, including humans. So, so we have... Think- we have we have influenza that can infect horses and also dogs. So, yeah. And I think this is an interesting thing to bring up. I mean, Scott, where you worked in Ames is actually a BSL-4. So um, that's the top security level bio lab, one of them in the country. Um, and so they, they deal with these things all the time. And I think that's the thing that also helped to maybe put my 
uh, my senses on high alert early on was Scott helped me to understand the, the basics of the virus on a, on a biology level. So all of these questions about is this true or is this not, um, I think the best uh, best lens to look at it through is understanding the virus at a, a biological level and understanding that, you know, how, how is it, how is, how is, how does it infect people? What does it do to you once you get it? Cause once you understand that, then you can, it's easy to, to look at something that comes out of the, the government about face masks to say, this is nonsense because mm-hmm. we know what this virus is. So you really have to focus on understanding the virus before you can really understand the macroeconomic and geopolitical uh, effects. You need to know the virus first. Yeah, yeah. So our campus in Ames for USDA is the National Center for Animal Health, and it's like the CDC on the animal side. So it's, it's here in Ames, Iowa. So it's a big campus, a large campus. It does diagnostics. It does research. It does uh, uh, regulates vaccines that are used in animals. So it's, it's quite the campus for, for veterinary medicine. Uh, Scott, it's so- actually it's our, our diagnostic lab here in Ames. I'm, I'm sure of the ones that diagnosed uh, those cats that are in New York that, that came down with the virus. So, Oh, okay. That's interesting. Um, I, here's a, here's a question that might lend itself exactly into your area of expertise is that um, in the last like week or so, you know, originally it was like a guy definitely ate a bat at a wet market in Wuhan. And now like in the last couple of days, it's starting to come out that like through reputable sources are reporting that top researchers are saying it probably escaped from a lab and it's actually like a, a genetically engineered or genetically modified um, virus that escaped the lab. Um, do you, I guess, does your research background lend itself to you having an opinion one way or the other on what's more likely? Um. Yeah, I definitely think it, it's bat related, but that can also be, you know, there's there's good information showing that that, that laboratory was doing research with bats and, the, and those viruses. And the people that were working with them um, had that background also with coronaviruses. So uh, it looks very suspicious that this is an accidental leak from that from that laboratory and not uh, from the wet market. Brad, before yeah, I would I... say there's actually there's more evidence to show that it's coming from the lab than there are, there is evidence saying it's coming from the wet market. Where I believe they've interviewed roughly 60 people that did business at that wet market, and all of them deny that that there were horseshoe bats sold within that wet market. Um, the index case or the original case um, that was found had never even been to that wet market or had contact with anybody there. Um, and also the the species of bat that this virus comes from is the horseshoe bat, which the closest colony of horseshoe bats is like 900 kilometers away. Um, and they're not being sold in that wet market. Yeah. And the horseshoe bats are the bats that the Wuhan uh, Infectious Disease Lab or whatever it was called. Um, that's the bat they were doing studies on, specifically on coronaviruses. So when you start to dig into the details, the whole idea that this came from the wet market becomes more absurd and the likelihood that it leaked from the lab is, is more and more obvious. Well, the other, the other tell is, is the government official uh, communist government uh, narrative, which is to promote the idea it came from the wet lab or, or the United States military, whichever you want to believe. 
So they're they're trying to downplay and cover up the fact that it leaked from their laboratory. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, I guess I, I one of my clients that I, I spend a lot of time with uh, that we have you know plenty of time to just kind of shoot the shit. Um, she told me one time she studied abroad in, in Russia right after the fall of the Soviet Union. And she has told me that uh, she was kind of complaining to another student there about how awful the propaganda is in Russia. And he was like, yeah, but the difference is in Russia, we know that everything the government's telling us is like a version of the truth. It's all propaganda. But in America, you guys haven't really figured that out yet. And like, I guess like over the last couple of weeks, I'm seeing that more and more like, what is this? You know, who's everything has a political slant to it one way or the other. And it's just like, it's so frustrating for me to see like what could be a potential, uh, a potential treatment for this to be polit or to be politicized. Now it's like, uh, apparently red states are willing to use the hydrochlor, whatever the hydrochloroquine, I think. Um, hydroxychloroquine hydroxychloroquine and then blue states are like no that's a evil uh uh, capitalist play by trump to just line his pockets and it's like the truth has to lie somewhere in the middle on all of this stuff right and i i guess it's just do you have any thoughts on like what the whole the truth of the matter i guess we've already kind of been over this on who to look at but it's just like you know you say look at alternative news sources well that's what turns people down the the path of thinking that Bill Gates is the global conspirator behind all this. And it's just a big play by the new world order. And it's all billionaire cabal conspiracy to make all of us stay at home so they can infect us or whatever. And um, yeah, I guess I'm just kind of off on a rant here, but uh, I don't want to lead this too much down a weird lane. So Brad, do you have anything else that you think would be important to get from Scott? Well, I think the the hydroxychloroquine is a is a big deal. Um, we're seeing incredible results coming from that. And Scott, you really can dive into how it works versus just saying that it works. Um, and and the, the way that it functions with the cell is really important. And also what it's being paired with, where um, it's not just hydroxychloroquine and you're good. It's hydroxychloroquine plus uh, zithromycin, plus zinc in many circumstances. Um, Scott, do you want to break down why you think that it's being effective? Yeah. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll announce here today there is a hack. There's a hack for this virus. Are you listening, Taylor? I'm listening. <laughs> I've never been listening okay. more. Okay. There's actually a hack for this virus, and it's zinc. It's the mineral zinc. You've all heard of that metal, zinc. Zinc's important in this, and that's the hack. The, the reason zinc is a hack is because it has the ability to do two things that are important. It can, there's, a, there's an enzyme that this virus uses to replicate in our cells, and it's, it's a replicase enzyme. And zinc actually can inhibit that enzyme, and, and it does that intracellularly, and we'll talk about that here in a second. So one, it can, this zinc can actually inhibit the replication of this virus, which is critically important, obviously. The second thing is zinc is, has the ability to mitigate inflammation. And that's why uh, people that have lupus and rheumatoid arthritis use uh, a drug like hydroxychloroquine because it allows zinc to do its, take its action and control inflammation. So this disease, this virus replicates within our cells 
triggering inflammation and inflammation is the cause of all our all the diseases caused from this virus and hydroxychloroquine is important in that regard because it allows zinc to transfer from outside the cell to inside the cell where this action can take place so it can once it enters the cell zinc can inhibit the replicase enzyme stop the production of the virus and also help control the inflammation that's triggered or, or caused by the virus itself. So that's the hack that we know about when it comes to this virus right now. I feel like I have some peace of mind after hearing that. I like that. Zinc. Well, and <laughs> Scott, do you want to dive into the, there's actually a natural version that does something similar. What's the word that uh, hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine where it's what is it called when it, it's an ionophore, yeah. So, so the ionophore, a zinc ionophore, is. Let me back up just a minute. Explain. Zinc, zinc can't cross the cell membrane very well, so it stays outside. It, it tries to, it tries to transfer from the outside to the inside. But it's a, it's a double charged. It has a double positive charge on the outside of the, of the the molecule, so it tr doesn't transfer across the membrane very well. So it's blocked from going inside the cell and doing, doing its action. So hydroxychloroquine and another natural compound called quercetin, which is a bioflavonoid found in, in several um, foods and also in dietary supplements, um, they're, they're ionophores. And what they do is they help transfer zinc from outside of the cell to inside the cell. So it's a, they're called a zinc ionophore or an ionophore. It's almost like you can think of a channel that opens up and allows uh, zinc to enter inside the cell. And then once again, once it's entered inside the cell, it can do two important things, stop the replication of the virus and mitigate the infl inflammation that's triggered by the virus. So preventing the disease in two important ways. This might be along those same lines. And it's another one of those things that I feel like all of the research that I've kind of seen and the statements that I've seen have been made by scientists saying one thing and then like kind of shrugging their shoulders and like, ah, we, we don't know. And it, that's the, the blood type differences and the way people are affected. Like, um, I have, I'm, I'm type O positive. So they're saying like, that's the one that has the least reaction to it. It's the least deadly for type O positive. And if you're type A, it's, uh, you're in trouble. So it is, I guess from a scientific background, is there, is it, is there a hard and fast reason why different blood types would have more of a risk in, in terms of uh, reaction to infection? I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a specialist in that regards, but I don't put much weight and concern and thought into it. I, I, to me, it's not very important at this point. Um, I, I will tell you another important piece of information uh, about this. Here's a theory I'm, I have that I just came up with this last week. So we, we know two people are, are of high um, susceptibility or high uh, predilection for this virus, two people that are predisposed. And those are diabetics, pre-diabetics, and uh, elderly. So people, you know, they, they say obese, not necessarily because they're obese, but it's because they're diabetic. The interesting thing is that those two categories of people, people that are older, people that have diabetes, 
are also tend to be deficient in zinc. So that is, I, here's another piece of news that that's being broken right now is my theory is what predisposes people to this virus is, is zinc deficiencies. Cause we understand more of the pathology and how it causes disease and how zinc actually helps fight that. And if people are deficient in zinc, they're going to they're gonna have a harder time battling this infection and controlling the inflammation from it. Now, I don't know if that's, if that um, is, the, is the only predisposition and explains most of why these two groups of people are susceptible. We'll find that out later. But I, you know, from what I understand right now, how, how zinc plays a significant role in the pathology, the, what we call pathogenesis of this um, this virus, I believe that's a potential problem that we have. So the easy thing is to mitigate that is obviously to get people on zinc supplements and also try to use an ionophore. And I, these these things need to be used prophylactically, meaning that before you get disease, not not as a mitigating treatment. Now, mitigating treatment, we can talk about later, but prophylactically, everybody should be taking ionophore like quercetin and zinc. So, so you, they can mitigate the, that susceptibility that diabetics and elderly have. And so, I, I guess... And, oh, and go, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that there's, there's studies now just getting started about using hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic, as a preventative, not just as a treatment. I guess a, a question that I have for you, and, and this kind of relates to what you just said, as well as um, what you said earlier, is you mentioned that uh, inflammation is where we really find um, a lot of the problems arise from inflammation when, when you're infected. And it, it, I guess uh, I'm, a, I'm a big listener to Joe Rogan and you know, I don't, I don't think that he is the end all be all for medical advice, but I think he does a good job of bringing on different medical experts to provide different opinions. And, um, one of the experts that he had on, I think it was Dr. Rhonda Patrick was, you know, kind of sounding alarm bells about like 90% of the things that are wrong with health are because are caused by inflammation and inflammation is by and large caused by like simple, uh, uh, unrefined sugars or refined sugars, um, carbohydrates in general, cause increased inflammation. And I guess maybe with like diabetics where you say that they're at an increased risk, does that have any type of correlation like um, inflammation in general and, and like your normal life and then being infected or is just the inflammation as a result of the infection what you have to be worried about? Well, yeah, I guess in my credentials, I should explain that, that I've been working in that area for decades. Um, I actually have written three books on uh, inflammation and inflammatory syndrome and uh, based on nutrition and, and how to mitigate uh, the cause of disease by obviously reducing inflammation, mitigating inflammation, preventing the triggers of inflammation. So we do know sugar, sugar is a, uh, a trigger of inflammation. So yeah, that's right in line with this, but, but these, these biological pathogens are extremely potent at triggering inflammation and that, and causing disease. So, uh, yeah, this is, uh, most disease always, uh, comes from inflammation. And the, the key is what's the trigger to try to avoid the triggers. And once a trigger is, uh, exposed and, and 
inflammation begins, how to mitigate and control that to prevent disease from happening. That's a, I'm, I'm glad that the, the inflammation and sugar um, argument holds water because uh, Brad can attest to it. I've got, I've had gout since I was 18 and like I can literally tell like the difference in my diet for like the last couple of weeks. Well, if I've been just going hard on the sugar and eating whatever the hell I want, I like can hardly walk for a couple of weeks straight. And, you know, if I keep my diet super clean, just meat and vegetables, drinking water, black coffee, no problems ever. So um, I'm glad that it's not just all in my head and there's actually some science behind it. And a scientist has backed it up now. I just I just read something where uh, uric, uric, uric acid is reduced significantly. And I and I'm trying to remember, is it from quercetin? I'm, it might be. Um, but we'll stay in touch about that. I like it. Um, Brad, is there, is there anything else? I mean, we're getting up to the, uh, the 45 minute mark here. So, um, you know, I don't want to keep this dragging on for too long. I just want to make sure that we got all the information in here. That's uh, really pertinent to, you know, the audience to, to hear and, you know, kind of go forward with for their own research. And, um, I guess well, information if we, for if their we, life. If we, I was going to say, if we have a few minutes, I would talk, we should talk about treatment. Love it. Yeah. That's what I was just going to say too, is, um, I would say, in a lot of ways, I'm more optimistic today, Taylor, than in back when we were working in the office in the early stages of this. Because back in the early stages, we didn't know of any therapeutics or any way to really slow this down or or help people who were sick. And we have multiple ways that have that are coming out now of, of being able to help people and even be able to keep people from getting sick. So um, there's there's good optimism um, that we'll be able to get this under control. But I think we have to be we have to be looking at ways to slow the spread down through um, just social issues, whether it's wearing masks, washing hands, um, social distancing, um, keeping, uh, not doing unessential things where you're where you're around people. Um, I think that that's huge. Keeping your your social circle tight, not not going to parties, not doing those things that you don't have to. Um, so that's important. And also understanding that uh, we're not out of the woods per se on that everybody's just going to get this once. Um, that we're seeing signs coming out of Korea, um, multiple places that either people are susceptible to reinfection and or the virus is going dormant and they are testing negative and then the virus is, is uh, being reactivated and they're positive again. So um, both of those things, I think, tell us that the antibodies that our bodies are creating are not perfect shields uh, in stopping this from ever reemerging. So these therapeutics and uh, and prophylactics, I think, are are really important for us being able to come out of this and get back to some realm of normal life. Scott, what do you? Uh, we've talked quite a bit about this. What do you have to say? Yeah. Well, another thing that's important for listeners, the audience, to know is that. Um, if you if you get this virus, and especially if you get a serious case of it, there can be lifelong permanent damage caused by this virus. Unlike the flu, which normally you recover and it's cleared and you don't have any um, sequela for following problems with it. This virus can cause l- permanent lung damage, heart damage, neurological damage, liver damage, kidney damage. It's it's it can be devastating in serious cases that are that have long lingering lifelong problems. So. That's, you know, significantly different than what we'd see with uh, influenza. 
That is at least, uh, I guess, like the idea of having a potential um, treatment that's not just like, okay, I'm in the hospital, uh, I'm going to die, treat me kind of deal, and having the, the, the possibility of being able to treat it, you know, um, on your own or even, you know, uh, prophylactically, which I, I like that word. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah. I would say, Taylor, like locally, we're really, I think we're just coming into it here. I don't know if you saw the news that 16 cases, new cases were announced in Dakota County today. Uh, four additional cases in Woodbury County. Um, I think this is our, our testing is either just catching up and or the virus is really just starting to to hit here. Uh, I my personal opinion is I think it's more we're just starting to identify the cases with proper testing. But yeah. um, locally, we we really need to um, not get laxed or think that we're out of the woods because our media may be coming from harder hit areas like New York or L.A that have had the virus longer and are maybe at different points on the curve that uh, we're early here and this is just starting. So people need to be very careful. Um, people need to continue to take precautions. And uh, there's, there's going to be a big uh, push trying to say that this virus isn't that bad because look at the amount of cases that we have now. Uh, and they said it was going to be way worse. Uh, and I think we have to keep in mind the level of mitigation that was taken to slow this down. We shut down the number world economy in the world. We told people to stay home. We closed businesses. We There wasn't March Madness this year. There's no MLB. Like All of these things that are going on were major, unprecedented steps to slow it down and, and flatten the curve, and they have been effective so far. So we shouldn't take lower numbers as a, a piece of evidence to say, well, this isn't that bad, as much as to say that the the actions that we're taking, whether it's social distancing or the therapeutics that we're trying in, in test cases like South Dakota is doing the hydroxychloroquine clinical trial. I know they've been using it in Chicago. They've been using it in New York. That um, these are, are major, major factors in keeping the, the case counts lower and also keeping the death toll lower. And uh, so we don't we don't want to get lax. We want to kind of keep on our toes, stay hopeful, stay optimistic, but also stay aware. Yeah, and I'd give a hat tip to uh, Christy Nome in South Dakota. Uh, she's a great governor and taking very good leadership throughout this this whole thing. And and that hydroxychloroquine, uh, man, that's that was a a brave move, and it I think is going to turn out to be smart and uh, work well for them. And she's looking at using it prophylactically, which are that's a key to that's a key to this disease. Is you don't want to wait till you get serious. Um, and unfortunately, some doctors have waited, you know, maybe because of the supply of hydroxychloroquine or whatever, but they waited till the patients get serious, they're intubated. Well, by that time, there's so much damage and your chance of, a, of treating them um, and having a success, successful treatment is, is not very good. You want to you attack this with treatment early in, in the disease process to mitigate it. You don't want to wait. So the idea is you want to keep people out of clinics. You want to keep people out of hospitals. You want to treat them remotely so that they're not exposed to it and expose other people. And the treatment will be much more successful when, when started early and or as prophylactic. Definitely, definitely. And I guess uh, uh, just one thing that I like to always think of is, damn, there's a guy out there who's got it really bad because of a very specific situation right now. You know, it's like, um, I guess, for example, like when I – 
I think I when I turned twenty, when I turned twenty three, I the night before I was woken up in the middle of the night. I was supposed to be going to Afghanistan like two days. They woke me up in the middle of the night. Said, uh, "You got to get on a plane right now." Uh, you it got moved up. So I went to Afghanistan, like went through all the unprocessing, all that kind of stuff. Went back to bed, and then I woke up the next day and I was like, "Oh dang, yesterday was my birthday," and I didn't even think about it once in the day. And I really like the idea of like somewhere out there was a guy who was in prison for like 30 years and, you know, was like finally like, oh, got out of prison. And that was two days before the government was basically like, nobody can leave the house. No, no bars can be open. No restaurants can be open. Like imagine being that guy right now who's sitting at home in his halfway house going, damn. This, this is not what I was looking forward to. And he's looking at his watch going, how much longer do I have of this before I can go to a bar that I've been looking forward to for the last 30 years? Yeah. That poor boy. At least he's used to it, though. That, that's a, we're, we're, we have, uh, we're not well adjusted to the staying home and not being around people. It's, it's tough. I've been with our new store going down at Sunnybrook, you know, and meeting professionals and contractors and people down there. And we're still trying to do, do work. And you walk up to somebody that you're just meeting and it's such a strong urge to put your hand out to shake somebody's hand. And when neither one of you do it like that kind of awkwardness that sits between you is, is it's big. So um, it's, it's just a, a whole new way of life that we're going to have to get used to for, for a little while here. Well, one more thing um, I think the audience should know, and that is, um, the exposure and infection of this virus is, is not set, meaning that um, <clears throat> there's different exposures and different challenges you can get with this, this virus, meaning if you're exposed to a minimum amount of virus or dose that you, you become infected with, will usually lead to a mild infection, unless maybe you're a predisposed individual. But they also, the opposite is true. So if you have a overwhelming a challenge with a lot of virus from somebody that's that's expressing and shedding a lot of virus and or um, numerous times uh, from an individual or a group of individuals uh, over a length of period of time it increases your chance of having a significant infection uh, shed to you or received by you and we call that a dose so if you get a lot of virus dose depending on the concentration from somebody else or a number of people over a length, a longer length of time, getting a, giving you a large challenge dose of this virus, that your case is most likely going to be a lot more serious. So the idea is you want to prevent um, time and exposure with somebody that's shedding, spreading the virus, and minimize the amount of virus you can get from them. So that's why masks help. That's why distance distancing helps. And that's why these other things we talk about mitigating helps, um, you know, taking zinc and all those other things. And when you add all those up, not one of those things by themselves may prevent you from getting this virus and cause having disease. But if you add them all up, it gives you uh, a kind of a shotgun effect, a, a number of, of things that you're doing to prevent from becoming infecting and, and infected and suffering from the, this disease. So. That's an approach that um, usually you take in a biological system. That's extremely helpful. I think that's the first time I've heard somebody say that uh, 
um, like exposure, the intensity of exposure actually does have an effect on the intensity of, I guess, the, the virus for yourself. That's thanks. Yeah, Taylor, that's a, that's a good way to say it. The intensity of exposure. See, I use dose because of my back, my background, but the intensity of the exposure and the length of time that you have that exposure, those two things together can, can, can have a significant impact on the outcome of the disease that you ha- that you'll end up and, with, and I think the anecdotal evidence that's proving that point is the doctors that are dying yeah. of this, that are yeah. otherwise healthy, young, that they are getting high doses and exposure, um, yeah. and they are getting very severe cases. Same thing with doctors and nurses. So, um, yeah. super important that we uh, we try and protect them as much as possible, uh, finding ways to find them PPE. And, right. um, and hopefully keeping that's another thing is keeping them from being overwhelmed because if we're in there, like what we saw in Italy and what we're seeing in the UK and other areas where doctors are, are working 18 hour shifts and going home and sleeping for four hours, if at all, and then going right back in for another 18 hours, their immune systems are going to be, uh, compromised and are going to make them even more susceptible. So, um, you know, I, I, nobody appreciates the fact that this sucks for business more than me. I, I fully understand this sucks, but we have to remember that you have to have healthy human beings before you can have a healthy economy. And we know enough about this to say this is what we need to do to stay healthy. Um, so, you know, this, we just gotta, gotta, uh, grow up and deal with this, uh, and get, get through to the other side with as little damage as possible and protect our communities and our health professions. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. And I, I, my opinion, I think, and I, hats off to Christy Nome, I think she's wanting to do this, is to treat treat the uh, medical staff with, with hydroxychloroquine as a, as a preventative. And that's, to me, that's a, that's a great call and is it the appropriate action to take. Well, I, uh, I certainly don't have anything to add to, uh, to all of the great information that we've been, I guess, uh, given here by you, Scott, I, I really appreciate you taking your time out to do this. I know that you're, uh, you're retired and I think that Maury Povich is on right now. So, um, I know that it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's extremely nice it's for you to take time, time out of, of the day. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, Taylor, one thing I want to say to wrap this up is advice for local business people. So, um, reach, make sure you're staying in contact with your bankers. Uh, make sure you're staying in contact with your landlords, your vendors. Um, don't think that uh, that you're just on your own in this. The, the, the community has been uh, great. And whether whether it's bankers or landlords, they've all been great to work with. So reach out to those people from a financial perspective. Um, from a health perspective, um, just know that, you know, exchanging money uh, is an is a easy way to come in contact or to possibly expose somebody. Uh, so whether it's credit cards or money or meeting somebody face-to-face to conduct business. So do anything that you can to try and either reduce um, having to actually have that exchange of an object or a fomite, to use a, a medical term back and forth. Or if you do have to exchange money or credit cards like we do at our Gordon Drive store with the drive through we have it set up where we're um, our, our cashiers are wearing gloves, and then they're dipping their gloves in sanitizing uh, sani solution after every exchange back and forth. So that's allowing us to ensure that when we're handing them a cup, 
of coffee, it's not infected from somebody else's money that was in line, you know, five people before them and, and protects everybody from then on, on throughout the rest of the day. So I would say wear masks, have your employees wear masks. And um, also, if you have gloves, have them wear gloves. And if they're coming in contact with customers, uh, sanitizing, finding some way to sanitize between interactions is super, super important. Good information. That is good information. Scott, you got anything to wrap up? Yep. I'll, I'll say one thing. Everybody's kind of wishing, you know, for everything to go back to normal. And I'm pretty confident going back to normal is not going to happen. Going forward, there will be a new normal, not the old normal. I look forward to seeing what that is. I, I have, I have, uh, I have faith in, uh, uh, Americans in general, but I think that people in Sioux City and people in Iowa in general are a little bit better than the average American. So I have extra faith in us. So um, I, I really appreciate you both taking time out of your day to do this. Um, I really appreciate anybody who's still holding in here for the podcast. And I hope that you guys all learn something that you'll be able to um, apply and into your daily life and shut some dummies down on Facebook when they're given stupid information. <laughs> And I guess if nothing else, uh, until next time, this has been the Sioux City Show. Sioux City Show. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.